Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us today. Good morning, Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. Glad you're there. And everybody connecting with us online, we're so happy that you've connected with us online today. We are in a series that we are uh, enjoying. I am enjoying teaching this series straight through Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. And we're calling the series Be Encouraged. Today, we're talking about this concept of how we've been given the honor, the privilege, and the responsibility of trying to bring others along to introduce them to Jesus and help them find their way to following Jesus in their lives. And it's hard and it's awkward. And, and sometimes we, we feel like we're very inadequate. We're not well equipped to do it. And because of the fears and the awkwardness, oftentimes we just don't do it the way we should. To begin the day, and uh, we're going to get to 2 Corinthians here in just a moment in chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning there. But one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is found in 2 Kings uh, chapter 7. And in 2 Kings 7, the setting is this. Uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, has surrounded the city of Samaria with his entire army. He wants to overthrow the city. And he had a strategy that was almost a foolproof strategy. The idea was to surround the city and not allow any supplies to come into the city. Now, the city of Samaria was a walled city. There's only a couple of ways in, a couple of ways out. So he surrounded it and blocked off any access to any supplies coming into the city. For a little while, that was no problem inside the city walls. We had supplies for a while. Everything was going well. But if you go back and read the context in chapter 6, you'll find out that, that things had turned very, very bleak, even gruesome inside the city walls by the time we pick up with the story. Food supplies were running out, and, and prices were sky high on what little bit there was there, and people couldn't even afford what was available. It was so gruesome, and some of you like to read this kind of stuff. If you do, you could go back and read that two mothers even had resorted to cannibalism just to survive. It was that bad inside the city of Samaria. But there was this group of guys that were just outside the city gates, right there at the gates into the city that we're going to hear about here in, in chapter 7, beginning with verse 3. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Now, four men with leprosy in that culture, leprosy was a word. The word translated leprosy here means a variety of, of awful skin diseases that were incurable in their time. They had no cure for them. They were very, very contagious. And when people got one of these forms of leprosy, they were isolated from everybody else so that the disease would not spread. So they had their own little communities themselves, the lepers did, that they stayed together in. So there are four of these guys, they're outside the city, city gates. Now, one reason they would be at the city gates normally was they would have to beg for food or anything people would give them so that they could take care of themselves. Nobody would give them a job. Nobody would help them out with, with you know, a regular way of, of taking care of themselves. So they would often resort to having to beg. And here they are at the city gates, and things are so bad inside the city, nobody's given them anything. 
and they are starving to death. So here's what they came up with. Pick up here in verse 3 again. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? They knew where they were. They knew what was happening. They knew if they just stayed there, death was certain. It may be a long, drawn-out, ugly, painful death, but death was certain for them if they just stayed there. He goes on. If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and what's going to happen to us there? We will what? We'll die there. It won't be any better if we go into the city. The conditions there are so bad. There's hardly any food. Nobody's going to give us anything. We're going to die if we stay here. We're going to die if we go into the city. So they're thinking through all the options here, right? Talking it out. What else could we do? It says, so let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. Now, normally that would sound like a terrible idea, right? You're going to give yourself up to the enemy. But in this case, the options are so limited that seems like it might be a good option. Here's what they thought. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then what? We die. That's pretty obvious. If they kill you, you're going to die, right? But if they stay there, what's going to happen? They're going to die. If they go into the city, what's going to happen? At least there is, are you saying there's a chance, right? At least there's a little chance that if we surrender to the enemy, maybe they'll just take us as prisoners and at least we'll have somewhere to stay and they might give us a little food to eat. We might can survive as prisoners there. And if not, we were going to die anyway. So they've reasoned it all out. They think, well, of all the options we've got, that might be the best option. So here's what happens. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. Can you imagine their surprise? They're scared to death to walk into the enemy camp already. They probably have their hands up saying, we surrender, we surrender. And nobody is responding. And they look around and nobody, the camp is totally deserted. Now, remember back in Samaria, they're scared to death because they think they're surrounded by this great army. And these lepers have just discovered something. The enemy camp is empty. Now, he tells us here in Scripture why the camp is empty, okay? It says, verse 6, For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. God had done what God does best. He had done a miracle here. He caused them to think that they heard the sound of a great army coming to attack them. And they thought they were being caught off guard. It says at dusk, it means very early in the morning. They're not ready. They're not prepared. And they think they're about to be attacked. So their response was to get up and run. They had probably breakfast out on the table. They had, they had uh, you know, clothes laid out, their armor and their weapons for the day that they were going to be having to wear. And they just up and ran off. In the middle of all of that, says verse 8, the man who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and uh, got, took some things from it and hid them also. 
Now, you have to cut these lepers some slack, right? They were starving. They thought they were going to die. Now they have found this great supply of food, and not just food, but now they see clothes, and they see gold and silver, and these tents, they were running into the tents and just grabbing up everything they could, and they were taking it and hiding it because they thought, well, you know, if the army comes back, we've got to have this hidden somewhere where we can go find it again and have everything we need. We'll have all the money and all the supplies that we need to survive. They're thinking of themselves first, right, at first. All they're thinking about is themselves. I can't imagine how they must have just gorged themselves at first with the food that was out there. Uh, like I said, the way they left so early in the morning so quickly, there may have been food that had already been prepared for breakfast, just already sitting out, and they were just eating everything they could. Have you ever been so hungry? It just, you, just, you just ate so fast. You didn't even hardly chew it up. You, know, you just swallowed it so fast. And I can just picture these guys doing that. Uh, I know some of you eat that way all the time, but no, you know, it's not good. You, you need to chew your food. But, man, you can just picture this, can't you? But then it's like a light bulb comes on in their head, right, in their mind. Something changes in the middle of all of this. It says, verse, verse 9, then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. And that's what I want us to, to understand about you as a Christian and me as a Christ follower and the church because we are the church. And sometimes we need to be woken up to the fact that we're not always doing the right thing like we should. It's okay to admit that. It's okay to, to understand that. We've talked about it all through this, series, <clears throat> through this series, how it's easy in this culture to get inward focused, isn't it? It's about us. It's just about us. The church is there for me. The, the, the services are there for me. The, the, the programs are there for me. The, the, the uh, outreach is there for me. It, it's all for me. And that's the attitude these lepers were having. And then it dawned on them, hey, wait, this is not right. And, and they explain why they don't think it's right. Listen, this is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. That's why it's not right. Can you imagine how great this news would be for the people inside the city of Samaria? They had resorted to cannibalism. It was so bad. And all the supplies and all the food and everything they needed was right out there in the enemy camp. And the enemy soldiers were gone. It was there for the taking. Certainly good news, right? Great news. Amazing news. So it says... If we, if we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So you can go on and read the rest of the story. It, it tells us that they went back to the royal palace and they, they got an audience with the king and they reported what they had found. And of course, the king was suspicious of the story, right? 
this is a trick. They're, they're probably hiding outside the camp there, and they're going to ambush us when we go. And finally, they convinced them to at least go check it out. So they sent uh, a, a group out there, a small group of soldiers out there to check it out and see. Can you imagine uh, being ordered, this is your assignment today. You're going to go into the enemy camp, see if they're hiding to ambush us or not. You're going to be the guinea pigs that go first and see what happens. But they have a, a group that goes and they discover it's just like the lepers said. And there were enough supplies there that as they went and gathered those supplies and brought them into the city, it saved the whole city with those supplies that were there. And then it opened it up, of course, since the enemy was gone, they can now bring stuff in from the outside again. What we need to really grasp as the church, and that's us, is that we're sitting here with the greatest news ever. And there are people all around us that are hurting and hungry and starving. And some of them don't even realize the situation they're in. And it's wrong for us to be so inward focused, so so selfish in our lifestyles that we aren't willing to do what it takes to get them the good news that they need to hear. Now, we're not in charge of how they respond to it, but we are responsible for making sure they know, making sure they hear, making sure they have the opportunity to respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's better than food, physical food. It's better than, you know, water, physical water to drink. It's better than the finest clothes that we could help them find. It's better than, than all the gold and silver on the earth to know Jesus, to come to know him and follow him is greater news than anything else this world has to offer. And we are not doing right if we don't share this good news. And in the passage we're looking at today in 2 Corinthians, Paul, I believe, gives us some information here where we can, we can get four good principles for things we could do to help us be more effective in sharing the good news with others. Because I know if you're like me, to start doing that, to start talking to people about Christ, to start, you know, sharing the fact even that you're a Christian or, or uh, opening yourself up to the, the possible, you know, negative reactions to try to help people find their way to Jesus, it's a little scary. So we need to equip ourselves to do this in the best way that we possibly can. And in this section of Scripture, we see four principles to help us with this. The first principle is this. If we're going to share Christ with others... We need to do it with an obvious sincerity about our own faith. An obvious sincerity. Let's pick up here again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Now, if you were here last week, you remember he, he talks about how we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive from God uh, what we've done, whether good or bad, right? So he says, we know because we believe in God and we believe he's the judge that we're all going to have to stand before God. So since we understand what it is to fear the Lord, you see, fear of the Lord is part of what makes our faith sincere. 
It's a proper kind of fear. It's not where we walk around scared to death all the time. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is this awesome reverence for who he is and the power that he has, the position that he holds, and how we're going to have to answer to him. There is a, a proper fear of the Lord that we ought to live with. And so he says then, we try to persuade others. What we are, he says, is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. He says in verse 13, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now, that language may be hard for us to just understand the approach Paul is taking, but, but what he's trying to say here is this. We are not trying to impress you with how great we are. We're just trying to be real with you and our faith and our commitment to God. We want you to see that it's the real thing. We're not putting on a show. It's the real deal. See, if we're going to share Christ with others, one thing they're already, most people who aren't already Christ followers have admitted to is this. They are suspicious of people who call themselves Christians. They're especially suspicious of pastors. And we've given them some good reason to be sometimes, right? Pastors have. Some of the stuff that they've done in the name of Christianity but it's true for Christ followers within the church too. They are suspicious when we claim to love Jesus and claim that God is the most important thing in our lives and claim that we, we love, you know, being a Christian. They, they are suspicious of that. And one of the reasons they're suspicious is because they've been manipulated maybe in the past or lied to or deceived in the past. And they've had churches or pastors or Christians that just maybe wanted them for what they could do for them instead of really caring about them as people. And, and so there's that suspicion there. But one of the most convincing things that we can have on our side if we're trying to help people find their way to Jesus is they need to see we're just real, genuine people. We're not putting on any shows. We're not trying to manipulate people. We don't have any agenda other than we love what we found in Jesus and we want other people to know too. It's good news. We want you to have the good news. They're, they're looking for a sincerity, a genuineness in people who wear the name of Jesus. And certain things support that and certain things take away from that, right? When, when we say we're Christ followers, one of the things that can hurt that is we try to act like we're perfect because we're Christians. We, we try to act like it's all good. We've got our lives together. We don't have any problems. You know, we, we, we sometimes try to give the impression that if you're a Christian, then there are no problems in your life now and, and you've got a handle on everything and, and you know all the right answers, right, when they ask you a question. And uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to admit when you don't. It's hard to admit when you don't. Surveys show us that uh, we, we love life groups here at Lakeshore. We've got a lot of great life groups, so I would encourage you to connect with one. But one of the biggest things that people are hesitant about in hosting a life group at their house is they don't want people to see that their house is not just clean all the time. I, I just want to tell you, my wife 
does a great job with that. I'm not as good at it as she is. But we live in our house. You probably live in your house too, right? And when somebody's coming to be part of a life group, you know what they're not there for? To judge how your house looks. But we think we've convinced ourselves we've got to make sure it looks good all the time. Everything in our lives looks good all the time. And when it doesn't, we keep some distance between us and non-Christians. And when we keep a distance between us and non-Christians, we can't do a good job of sharing the good news with them like we need to. You see, if they think we are perfect, even if we could pull it off, then that deters them from coming to Christ because they know they're not. They don't have everything all together in their lives. And they don't want that being exposed. If, if you look like you're perfect, why would they want to be around you if you're acting like you're perfect all the time? That's one extreme that's a problem. But here's the other extreme, and that is when they see us not caring about sin in our lives. It's one thing not to be perfect. It's another thing to welcome sin into your life as if it's okay, as if it's no big deal, that you just go on sinning in your life. You see, that's not sincere either. That's not the real deal either. See, the real deal says I hate sin the way God hates sin, and I want to treat sin as an enemy. The enemy may win some battles, but I am not going to just surrender to the enemy and welcome sin into my life. I'm not. As a Christ follower, I can't do that. And so we need to have that balance of being sincere and real about the fact that we still struggle, but also sincere in the fact that we do battle with sin and that we're with Christ, we can win victory over sin. They need to see us doing that in our lives, that we're not welcoming sin into our lives as if it's okay. First Peter 2, uh, verse 12, Peter said this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You know, if we claim to be Christians, people are going to be critical and they are going to accuse us of all kinds of things. But if you're just doing the sincere, real Christian life like you need to, uh, you've got a great defense for your faith if you're sincere, if you're real as a Christ follower. William Barclay, a great Bible commentator, said this. A person's message will always be heard in the context with their character. If we're going to try to share the message of Christ, people need to see Christian character in us. If we're going to be effective and get them to believe the good news that we're trying to share with them. Our character matters. So it starts with an obvious sincerity. The second principle here is this. We need to be able to demonstrate a scriptural conviction as well. A scriptural conviction. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and that he died for all, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Do you, did you hear the language there? Christ's love compels us. They are so convinced of Christ's love for them that it controls them. It motivates them. It's why they live like they live and share their faith with others. It's because the love of Christ is so powerfully convincing to them. Are you that convinced of Christ's love for you? And for others, not just you, but everybody else out there too. You see, there needs to be a, this, this conviction 
about what the scripture says about Jesus. And he, he goes on to say, he says, we are convinced. The word translated convinced means no doubts whatsoever. We are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. We're convinced that he rose from the dead, conquered sin and the grave. If you're not convinced of this thing, how, how good are you going to be at convincing others that this thing is real and true? Now, if you're not convinced you need to start where you are and examine the evidence and go back and, and see, is there reason to be convinced? I believe the evidence is there. And if you're honest and you're seeking and sincere, I believe you can get that place to that place of being totally convinced of the truth of God's word. And if you're not there, then you're not ever going to be as effective as God wants you to be in reaching others and sharing the good news with them. That's why I love Christian apologetics. I love examining the evidences that are out there because it just strengthens your, it bolsters your faith. You can be convinced without doubt that Jesus is who the scripture says that he is. There's something compelling about somebody that's totally convinced. One of the uh, things Paul wrote in Romans uh, chapter 6, beginning with verse 2, he's discussing this idea that, that is it okay because God is so gracious for us as Christians just to go on sinning? And he says, by no means we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been, uh, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified uh, with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Do you hear the confidence in what he's saying? He's saying, man, when we were baptized into Christ, we were buried with him into his death. But when we were raised up in baptism, we were raised up with him in his resurrection. We live as people who have the power of resurrection in us. That's pretty convincing, isn't it? If you believe that, if you really believe that, is that good news? You know why it's such good news? Because all of us are going to do what? We talked about this the last couple of weeks. We're all going to die, right? But we're convinced in Christ there's an answer for death for the punishment of sin and death. And so if we're convinced of that, it's easier for us to have more effectiveness in, in teaching others and helping others find their way there. It says uh, uh, in Acts chapter 26 that uh, Paul had been preaching the gospel and, and uh, he's being questioned for his preaching and his teaching there. It says in verse 24 of Acts 26, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in secret. You see, Paul was so convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that the evidence was there. And Festus was aware of the evidence. He says, Festus, you know that what I'm talking about here is true and it's reasonable to believe what I believe. Are you that convincing when you're talking to other people about why you believe what you believe? Are you that convicted that it's true? And does that come across? Or are you apologetic for your faith all the time? 
whole lot of Christians in the world today are so apologetic. I know you may not agree with this, and I'm so sorry, but that's what I believe. You know, don't you think we should have a little more confidence in what we believe in that? Shouldn't we be bolder in our faith than that? I think we should. I'm not saying to be arrogant, not at all, but I'm saying to be convicted of what you believe, convinced of it for sure. There's nothing quite as contagious as enthusiasm. And so there needs to be this scriptural conviction where we're willing to share it. And that means we've got to be real with people. I was reminded this week as I was preparing of this lady that back before the time of cell phones, you know, way back then uh, before cell phones, she had traveled 50 miles to another town near her to visit a good friend. And after they concluded their visit, she went back to get in the car and realized she had locked her keys in the car. She was so upset. She knew, though, that her husband had another set of keys. He was at work. She was going to have to give him a call. So she went back in the house on the old landlines, you know, and gave her husband a call at work. He said, okay, I can stop what I'm doing. I'll get the other set of keys. You stay right there. I'll come and help you out. After she got off the phone with her husband, she went out to check the doors one more time and found out that one of the back doors of the car was unlocked. She could get in and get the keys, no problem. She ran back in the house and tried to call her husband as quickly as she could. He'd already left, couldn't get an answer, no way to get in touch with him. Her friend said, oh, no, he's going to drive all this way, and you've got the keys, and you could get in the car. He didn't even need to make the trip at all. What are you going to tell him? She said, I'm going to do what any good wife would do. And she went back out, put the keys in the car, and locked it up. <laughs> she said, don't you say a word. We have a hard time admitting when we mess up, admitting that we're not perfect, trying to cover up and make ourselves look good. But friends, if we're convinced of what Christ has done for us, we don't have to do that. You see, that's what his blood is all about. That's what forgiveness is all about. That's what grace is all about. And that's what people need to hear. That's good news for everybody because we all mess up, don't we? And if we could be real about it and the fact that there's an answer for it in Christ... That's good news that everybody needs in this world. So we need to be willing to, to be real and to share it. Well, the third thing we need to do, we need to have an obvious sincerity, a scriptural conviction, but we also need to have a spiritual perspective in how we live our lives. Look at verse 16. He said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. He's saying, Paul is, that once you know Christ and what he's done for you, and you know that he desires all to be saved, then you have a different perspective on people and their lives. It changes how you see people when you're convinced of God's love for lost people. We live in a culture where this is really hard, isn't it? It's so much about appearances, the culture we live in. That's why people make millions of dollars doing Botox and facelift and all that stuff, right? 
We can, we can reshape your body. We can make you look like you're younger than you are. We can, because appearances are such a big deal in our culture. Because how are people being judged by people of the world? By outward appearances, right? That's how people are being judged. That's how you're being judged. That's how I'm being judged all the time. Which gives me a great disadvantage, right? <laughs> when people are just judging by outward appearances. It gives all of us a disadvantage because we're all flawed. We all have you know, imperfections in our lives outwardly. All of us do. And Paul is saying, I don't even look at people that way anymore. I look at them from a spiritual perspective. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. When Paul looked at people, you know what he looked for? Do they know the good news yet or not? Have they come to find Jesus yet or not? Have I even made an effort with them or not to share the good news with them back in the mid 1930s there was a Lutheran pastor uh, who was later during World War II arrested and put in a Nazi prison camp and he said he woke up one night in the prison camp and he had a terrible nightmare and in the nightmare he had heard a voice behind him saying I never knew nobody told me about Jesus he said I woke up from that nightmare in the prison camp and I knew immediately who the voice was it was Adolf Hitler he said years before that in the mid-30s I was at a banquet and Adolf Hitler was sitting right beside me and for two and a half hours I carried on a conversation with Adolf Hitler and we only made small talk the whole time and I never once shared Jesus when I had the opportunity. Now, you don't know how he would have responded. Nobody can predict that. You don't know if it would have made any difference at all. But you do know you have a chance to talk to people. You do have opportunities to share the good news. And you don't know when you're going to have them again, if ever, those same opportunities. We don't need to take it lightly. We don't need to just let it slide by and not recognize that this moment may be the only chance we get to talk to somebody. So we have to see people from a spiritual perspective and know that this may be the chance. This may be the opportunity, and I need to, to do this in the best way that I can. In Philippians 3 and verse 7, Paul said, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You know what Paul didn't care about anymore? power and prestige and wealth those weren't the most important things to him anymore once he came to know Jesus even being popular wasn't the most important thing to him anymore the most important thing to him now was is this person have they had the opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ and could God use me to be the person to, to bring them that news it's a different perspective a spiritual perspective on how you're going to live your life from this point on the final principle is this, an obvious sincerity, a scriptural conviction, a spiritual perspective, and an appealing urgency, right? An appealing urgency. Look at, look at verse uh, 20. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he goes on into chapter 6 here. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, he's quoting 
God's word here. In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. And then Paul adds this. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you've not yet made that decision to receive God's offer of good news, of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, of salvation in Christ, I'm just going to quote Paul. I tell you, now is the time. This is the opportunity. This is the one you know you have. Today, you can make things right with God. You can be reconciled to God through Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Friends, that's good news. That's the best news you're ever going to hear for your whole life. It's that God has done that for you and that you can have that given to you freely through Jesus. But friends, for those of us who already know Jesus, we are his ambassadors. We represent him. He wants to use us to reconcile lost people back to him. And instead of judging those lost people the way the world sees them, we need to judge them the way God sees them. You know how God sees them? As people worth dying for. As people worth giving his son for. As people that are worth sacrificing everything for. They need to know the good news. And God has put us here to be those agents of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Christ, in Christ we can have such good news, sins forgiven, new life, the Spirit empowering us to live while we're here and, and taking us through death into resurrection for eternal life. Father, we thank you for the good news. And we pray that you would help us be those agents of reconciliation to the world around us while we're here, while we have the opportunity. Help us do the best job we can do. And Father, please forgive us for we have not been paying attention. We've not been taking it seriously. We've been too inward focused. Help us, Father, to change our perspective to a spiritual perspective from this day forward. And use us, Father, to bring others to know Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.